The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. Can you believe summer's almost over? Isn't that crazy? Summer's almost over. Great. It doesn't feel like it outside, though. It feels hot. It's a little hot in here this morning. Does it feel hot to you? It is a little warm this morning. I texted our guys, asked them to turn the AC on. Well, welcome to Story City Church. Sorry, I'm having a conversation with myself up here this morning. Hope you're well. Welcome. We're so glad that you guys are here this morning. If you're here for the first time, we count it a real honor that you'd spend a little bit of time with us on a Sunday morning. If you happen to bring a Bible today, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, turn it to the book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Last week, we started a series called Unusual Suspects. We're going to be studying through the book of Luke for several weeks here in the fall. And uh, we're looking at just a few chapters in the book of Luke. And we're really getting a glimpse of the types of people that Jesus began to attract, the types of people that Jesus came to serve, the types of people that Jesus came to save, the types of people that Jesus came to call out, to join him in his mission. And so last week we started this series and we saw that his mission was one that was calling for unusual diversity and we see another aspect of the types of people that he's calling today. So let me do this. I want, I want to pray for us in our time and the word together. If you'll just pray with me, Jesus, thank you for today. God, we don't take for granted this moment, this hour, this time together. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hands and feet to walk in the direction that you would speak to us, God. And we don't need another religious moment, another religious activity this morning. God, we need the spirit of the living God to speak to us today. And so, God, I pray that you bless our time in the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said amen and amen. Well, I had a first experience in Los Angeles this week. I was uh, selected for jury duty. Anybody had jury duty? Yeah, yeah, that was my reaction too. Uh, and so I, I was selected for jury duty this week, my first time in Los Angeles to do so. And you get called down to downtown LA. And you sit in this assembly room with like 200 other people. And, and uh, it's, it's like this sense of anxiety and nervousness. Like you're not sure what's going to happen. And they're going to put me on a murder case. You know, is it somebody that stole a pack of Twix at the, you know, Handy Mart? Like what, what am I going to get on? What am I going to be judging here? You know? And so they give us an orientation and you sit through a few hours of that. And, and, and then they begin to call people and say, you're going to be at this courtroom. You're going to be at this place. Some people across the street, somebody in the same building. And so they call my name. They call you, they call you by your number, not your name. You're 6332. I think that was my name. And so they sent me up to the 11th floor and there's 40 other people, but there's a, you know, this hallway is full of like 150 people in there just waiting around, um, for instructions for jury duty. And so we're in the hallway and the clerk of the court that I was serving in comes out. He gives everybody instructions. This is what's going to happen. Now, I want you to take a break. Uh, I want you to come back at 1.30. We'll see you at 1.30. And I was like, okay, great. I'm, I'm, I'm here for jury duty. And so we begin to leave and we've got like an hour and a half, two hours to go do lunch. And as soon as we break, this guy stands up in the hallway and he says, you now play God. <laughs> it was really weird. It was strange. <laughs> He was like, you are now God. He wasn't a jury. He wasn't a juror. Uh, he wasn't a lawyer. And uh, I guess he was maybe a defendant or a family member of a defendant. But when he said it, it kind of, you know, it startled me a little bit, right? And everybody in the hallway. And I'm like, I don't want that authority. And then, so it just gets really weird. And everybody starts dispersing. And he literally starts looking at people. You now play God. 
And I was like, I got to get out of here. This is too strange. And so then we come back from lunch and then we get into the courtroom and, um, and, and they seat us in the courtroom. It's just the jurors and the attorneys and the defendant. I don't I guess I'm able to say all this. I don't even know if I am, but <clears throat> we're, we're in the courtroom and, um, and, and uh, it's the attorneys and the defendant and the bailiff and the clerk. And the bailiff stands up and he says, uh, uh, Los Angeles Superior Court, Department 116, uh, Judge Norm Shapiro presiding. Court is now in session. And then he says, you know how this goes, all rise. And Judge Shapiro walks in. It was just a strange, you know, strange. I don't know if you've ever been in court. Some of you guys are probably way more familiar with court than I am. But I, uh, it was just a strange moment. You just sense when the judge walks in like, oh, man, I'm, you know, we're in the presence of authority. I, like, I, I'm not God. Ultimately, the judge, you just sense that you're in the presence of authority. I don't know if you, uh, if you have somebody in your life that just exudes that authority. When they walk in the room, you're like, man, they're in charge. They're, they're, they're in charge, right? I feel like that around my, my buddy Aaron. I'd never tell him this, except he's probably sitting in here this morning, so I guess I am telling you. But, but I, I feel safe around my buddy Aaron. He's a police officer, and uh, we were at the park a couple of weeks ago, and we're celebrating a birthday party for our kids, and, and this strange guy walks into the park, and he starts talking to all our kids, and you could tell this doesn't seem right, and I'm confident there's not a dad that was there that wouldn't protect their kids, but the next thing you know, Aaron's marching towards this guy, and, and he has like a brief conversation. Next thing you know, this guy's marching out the park, you know, and you know Aaron is in charge. I, you, you just, I don't know if you have people like that in your life. Maybe it's a football coach, a teacher, a parent. You know, if you know people, when they walk in the room, they just carry authority. Authority is a strange motivator, isn't it? Authority is a strange motivator. It, it can bring fear and anxiety, but authority can also bring a tremendous sense of peace about life. Today, when we look in the book of Luke chapter 4, we're going to see a ministry, a man with unusual authority. We get our first glimpse of the type of authority that Jesus carries, the type of authority that Jesus has. And so it causes us to ask some questions about Jesus. Was Jesus just this, this, this great speaker? Was Jesus just an excellent example of morality? Was he an inspirational teacher? Was there something about Jesus that carried unusual authority that should cause us to pay attention? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31 today, and this is what the scripture says. Verse 31, then he, meaning Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. Now, if you were here last week as we kicked off this series, you saw the preceding verses. Jesus is in Nazareth. He's teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, and they literally kicked him out of the town. And so Jesus is now relocating his ministry to a coastal town known as Capernaum, still in the region of Galilee. And Capernaum would be sort of the base of Jesus's ministry for most of the book of Luke. And so Jesus is now in Galilee. Maybe it's a week later. Last week he was also in the synagogue. We see him again now. He's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now verse 32 says they were amazed at his teaching. Now listen to how this is described. Listen to how his teaching is described. Because his words had, what does it say? Authority. 
In the synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus, uh, they wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff, but then he gets to Capernaum and he's teaching, and they're amazed by his teaching. They're astonished at the words that are coming out of his mouth. His words possessed authority, and this is the first authority that we see about Jesus here. Jesus taught with unusual authority. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. He was a preacher. This was his primary Ministry And Jesus' teaching was drastically different from the rabbis they're used to listening to. It's drastically different. Typically, a rabbi would stand up. He's going to read from a passage of scripture. He's going to close the scroll, however the scroll closed. And then he would begin to quote rabbi after rabbi after rabbi. And he would quote their opinions as to what the passage meant. They had an incredibly skillful ability to bore people with the Bible. And they would read the Bible and stand up and they would say, and this rabbi says this passage means this. And the Galilean conference of rabbis says this passage means this. And the Neo-Capernaum Association of rabbis says this, this means this. And they would bore people with the scriptures. And then Jesus walks in. Jesus walks in the synagogue and he's nothing like the religious teachers they're used to. And, and we don't have this physical description of what's going on, but you picture this man being enthusiastic. You picture Jesus being passionate. But what we do know from last week of verse 18, it says he's filled with the Spirit. That's what he quoted from Isaiah chapter 61 when he's preaching in the synagogue the week before in Nazareth. And that verse from Isaiah 61 said, and the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to preach good news. So Jesus is preaching with unusual power. And he tells the people who are listening the meaning of the Old Testament centers on me. The meaning of the Old Testament centers on the work that I'm about to do. And so Jesus is teaching as this unusual authority. And they're amazed at his teaching. Can I just ask you this morning, how do you respond to Jesus' teaching? I'm not talking about modern preaching. We have such access to so much preaching in our culture today. It's so available that we rate preaching on sermon podcasts. We've got five stars. I'm grateful for that. But <laughs> there's so much. That's not what I'm talking. I'm not talking about modern preaching. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about this morning is this, the most important words that you will hear today, the most important words you'll hear on any Sunday is when the scripture is read. How do you respond to Jesus' teaching? I'm talking about the scriptures this morning. Do you see them as authoritative? How do I know, Pastor Matt, if I embrace the scriptures in my life as authoritative. Well, you know, based on whether or not you allow the scriptures to shape your life without exception. C.S. Lewis, one of the great writers of the 20th century, said, if we believe God has spoken, naturally we will listen to what he has to say. And sometimes we think, well, 
Well, it's just the non-Christians who will pick up a Bible and they would immediately dismiss parts of the Bible that they don't agree with morally or, or it doesn't fit with their cultural narrative. It doesn't fit with their social issue. And we would naturally think it must be non-Christians who would look at the Bible and say, this has no authority. But even in modern biblical scholarship, there are people who would take the Bible and literally rip sheets of paper out of the Bible, would, would draw lines through passages of the Bible and verses of the Bible because it just seems too much to believe, whether that's miracles in the Bible, whether that's healings in the Bible, whether that's cultural issues in the Bible. Do you embrace the scriptures as authority this morning? Even when they challenge you. Even C.S. Lewis admitted that he had difficulty with the doctrine of hell that we see in Scripture. But he said, I submit to it because I recognize the authority of God's word. We've quoted this before from C.S. Lewis. He says in The Problem of Pain, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But listen to what he says. But it has the full support of Scripture and specifically of our Lord's own words. Are there areas of your life that are not surrendered and submitted to the authority of Scripture? Are there areas of Scripture that you refuse to allow your affections to embrace? If you're having trouble with the authority of Scripture, can I just suggest to you today a starting point for trying to figure out whether the Bible has authority? The starting point is not what culture says. The starting point is not pop culture. The starting point is not a politician. The starting point is not history. The starting point is not philosophy. May I point you, if you're wrestling with the authority of the Bible, the starting point is to actually pick up the Bible and ask the spirit of the living God to help you recognize the authority in them. And Jesus taught with authority. But we see another unusual aspect of his authority in verse 33. Listen to what the scripture says. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us? Listen to how he describes him. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Do you find it strange, by the way, that there's a demon-possessed man inside the synagogue. How did this guy get here? Did he walk off the street? Was he a regular attender in the synagogue? Let me just say as a side note, in any church in America around the world, there should be room for people who were not well. And if we are doing church right, it's a place where sick people become well. But back to the text. Demons have a high view of Jesus. They know who Jesus is. Throughout the book of Luke, we're going to see these encounters between, between demons and Jesus. And so as the kingdom of God begins advancing, as the kingdom of God begins to flourish, 
there's opposition from the kingdom of evil. And we're going to see this battle all throughout the book of Luke. But there's a commonality in all of these battles. I was literally driving in this morning and I heard a preacher on the radio say there are 18 mentions of Satan in the Old Testament. There are 36 mentions of Satan in the New Testament. We see Satan in the Old Testament. We see him. We see demonic activity in the kings. We see demonic activity in Samuel. We come over to the New Testament. We see demonic activity in the ministry of the apostles, but the majority of demonic activity we see in the Bible happens during Jesus's ministry on earth. The commonality in all these battles that we'll see in the book of Luke between Jesus and demons is that the demons recognize the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus is teaching in this synagogue in Capernaum, and he encounters a man who's possessed by a demon. And do you wonder why we see the majority of demonic activity in the New Testament centered on the ministry of Jesus? Do you wonder that? I think it's obvious that the supernatural world of Satan recognizes the authority of Jesus. And as Jesus' kingdom is being ushered in, it feels as if Satan is gathering all of his armies to the region of Galilee during the time of Jesus. Why? Because he recognizes the unusual power that Jesus has. Now look at his power. Verse 35. Jesus says to the demon, be quiet. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all meaning the man who was possessed by the demon, not Jesus, and came out without injuring him. And so this man that Jesus has encountered is under oppression from a demonic spirit. And before Jesus even speaks to this demon, this demon speaks to Jesus and he identifies Jesus. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And then he asks him a question. Have you come to destroy us? The us is interesting here, by the way. And this is not the first time nor the last time we're going to see a plurality of demons possessing someone. But then the demon calls Jesus who he really is. The demon says, you are the Holy One of God. And then in two sentences and six words, Jesus turns what was a synagogue turned into some sort of UFC octagon where there's this battle going on. In two sentences and six words, Jesus calms the scenario when he rebukes the demon and he calls him out of the man. Wouldn't you love to have been there? <laughs> Wouldn't you love to have witnessed what's happening in the synagogue as this demon is displaced from this man? A few years ago, I met a guy by the name of Mark Berg, executive producer of all of the Saul movies. And we had dinner down in Santa Monica, and we drove up to his house in Beverly Crest in his Tesla. And when we got into his house, he showed us the uh, memorabilia room of uh, all of his saw memorabilia. It was so cool. I'm not much of a horror fan. I watched Friday the 13th when I was a kid. But, and I know we have some people in our church who act in horror movies, and that's cool. But I'm not much of a horror fan. But, but, uh, but still, it just felt, it was awesome. It was like I was in the presence of something pretty amazing. But I think about Luke chapter 4 here. But Saul has nothing on what happened here in Capernaum. 
The power of Jesus is on display. And even the demons submit to him. Not only that, but those who are watching, the Bible says they were amazed. I don't think that word does justice to what happened in the synagogue that day. I don't think there's enough force and enough power in that word. It was, it was staggering. It was stunning. It was dumbfounding. It was awe-inspiring. It was astonishing. Jesus taught with unusual authority, but Jesus exercised power over the supernatural realm with unusual authority as well. Jesus taught with unusual authority, but he exercised power over the supernatural realm with unusual authority as well. And that's what we see in the Bible, James chapter 2. We see that the demons tremble in the presence of Jesus. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. And then we also see in the book of Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, that Jesus, when he commands a demon, that demon must obey. The scripture says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now look at how the people in the synagogue respond. Verse 36, and all the people were amazed. There's the word. And they said to each other, what words these are. Now listen to what they say. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. There's, there's really so much here about the supernatural realm that I really want to, as a church, dive into. There were questions in our last series about the supernatural realm, and there's so much that I want to explore as a church, and eventually we will get there about how, uh, questions about how we invite demonic activity by opening the windows and the doors of our lives. There's so much about angels and demons that I want to explore. There's so much about Satan, the person of Satan, his army, who our enemy really is. There's so much I want to say about the supernatural realm but I cannot say it today, but let me just say this. Even the demons obey Jesus. In this day, there are Jewish exorcists. They, they, it's, actually, it's an actual profession. There are Jewish exorcists during Jesus' day. They specialize in trying to extract demons from people. Just a few weeks ago, we saw the exorcist firm of Sceva, 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 and Sceva in Acts chapter 17, and we saw how that ended. Some of the exorcisms in the Bible look more like poltergeists or the exorcists, and they just don't go the way they thought they were going to go because they they didn't know what they were doing. But Jesus shows up with divine authority and simply says, be gone. That's simple. That's authority. The demons obey him. Why? Because he's God. His authority cannot be rivaled. There's no one like him. His authority is unprecedented. His authority is unequaled. Now, in just a minute, I want to come back to the supernatural world and tell you why Jesus' power is important to you and for you. But Jesus leaves the synagogue here, and he goes to Peter's house, and the scene changes. And look in verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue, and he went to the home of Simon. <clears throat> 
This is Peter here. There's no introduction to Peter here. We're going to meet him later in the book of Luke, but this is, uh, this is Peter's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, by the way, um, if, if you come from a Catholic background and believe the priest cannot be married, then uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 38 is great evidence that Peter was married. I got married to my wife, not my mother-in-law. She's a great addition to the family, but I got married to my wife. You don't just marry a mother-in-law, so apparently Peter is married here. That was totally a sidebar. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Mark's account here of this passage, Mark chapter one, starting in verse 21, Mark tells us she was suffering from a fever. Luke, the author of Luke, is a doctor and he describes it more precisely and he says she's suffering from a high fever and they ask Jesus to help her. Verse 39, so he bent over and he rebuked the fever just like he did with the demons and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. Luke says this woman is suffering from a high fever. He knows what he's talking about here. This is a potentially life-threatening situation. She's close to death. They cannot figure out a way to cause the fever to break. And so they call on Jesus. And Jesus comes to the house and he leans over Peter's mother-in-law. And just like he did with the demon, he commands the sickness to vacate her body. And the sickness obeys. Immediately, the woman stands up as a sign of worship and awe and authority, and she exercises her gift of hospitality, and she begins serving those who are in the house. We've seen that Jesus teaches with unusual authority. We've seen that Jesus exercises power over the supernatural realm with unusual authority. And here in verse 38 and 39, we see Jesus healed the physical with unusual authority. Jesus has had a heck of a day. <laughs> he's preached. He's cast out a demon. He's healed a sick woman. If I'm Jesus, I'm like, I'm calling it a day. I, I, in fact, I'm going to take tomorrow off as well. But even as the sun is setting that day, Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 40. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. And so people are coming to Jesus with all sorts of sicknesses diseases. They're coming with demon possession. They come to see Jesus. The line is growing outside of Peter's house. It's getting dark. The Sabbath day is over and people are coming to be healed. And he prays over them and he lays his hands on them and he heals them and he commands the demons to come away from them. And then the demons are proclaiming who Jesus is. And then Jesus does something interesting. Jesus silences the demons from speaking. Have you ever wondered why Jesus would silence someone from saying who he is? It's because Jesus is going to speak for himself. <laughs> the demons don't have a voice in announcing and proclaiming the coming Messiah. By the way, wouldn't that be just a little bit confusing to hear a demon claim that someone is the Messiah? Wouldn't you be prone to not believe what they're saying? Jesus is going to speak for himself, so he silences the demons. And then we remember last week, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. 
and he's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verse one and two, and we remember the words of Jesus after this day. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Can't you see what's happening before their very eyes? And recovery of sight for the blind. Again, I told you last week, these, the, we use these words as, as, as figures of speech to refer to sin, but let's not downplay and dismiss the reality that the blind are blind, the sick are sick, the oppressed are oppressed, and Jesus comes for those physical needs as well. He said, I came to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The king has come. The long-awaited Messiah is in their presence, and he's doing what he said he was going to do. Jesus taught with unusual authority. He exercised power over the supernatural realm with unusual authority. Jesus healed sickness with unusual authority. Now, let me just draw this to a close this morning. We can read this passage today with our very eyes. We can comprehend it with our minds that this was an unusual ministry of authority. This passage is about authority. This passage is about God's authority over everything. It's about Jesus' power. It's a passage also about the kingdom of God. We didn't read verses 42 and 43 and 44. And Jesus says, I've come and I've got to go to others to preach about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is important. Why? Because it establishes for us who our authority is. You may go home today and there may be someone in your home who does not recognize the authority of the kingdom of God. You may turn on your TV today and a celebrity or an actor or someone on your TV, a news anchor, may not recognize the authority of the kingdom of God. You may open your news app and read a politician who does not recognize the authority of the kingdom of God. But when Jesus comes in authority and he preaches the kingdom of God, he begins to establish who our authority is. And just like he does here in the synagogue, he's doing to us today today in the colony theater, and he's calling us to recognize, he's calling us to admit, he's calling us to surrender and submit the authority that he has over our lives. And this passage also presses in on us with this question about what is it that we long for the most? What is it that we seek? What is our, what is our actual agenda? This passage should really challenge us. It should challenge us just like Jesus challenged those in the synagogue, those who came to him for healing. This passage should challenge us to recognize Jesus' authority and whether or not we will embrace that authority. Those of us who are part of the kingdom of God, we are really unusual suspects. Those of us who are part of the kingdom of God are unusual suspects. Why? Because we willingly submit to unusual authority. I understand that our culture 
does not like this idea of authority, does not subscribe to this idea of authority. We are the most individualistic culture probably in the history of humanity. But those who have surrendered themselves to Jesus' kingdom are unusual because we surrender and submit and recognize God's unusual authority. We say, I'm not ultimate authority. I'm not ultimately in charge. I don't ultimately make the decisions. Yes, I act and I live and I work, but ultimately I am not ultimate authority. Do you embrace his authority this morning? Do you embrace his power? How would I know, Pastor Matt? You would know because you embrace the priorities of the kingdom. Jesus is not just this good teacher. He's not just this inspirational, motivational teacher. His words carry life-transforming power. He's not just an exceptionally moral man. His example is, is compelling authority on our life. He's not just a man with unusual physical abilities and the ability to make sick people well. His authority over the physical and the supernatural demands that I trust that even he has authority over my life and my life is in his hands as well. And so Christianity has all of these connotations and these confusions. And the reality is we don't embrace Christianity because we like a certain set of rules. We don't embrace Christianity because we agree with a certain set of rules. We claim Christianity and embrace Christianity because we submit to Jesus's authority. Jesus really doesn't work well for people who are autonomous. They want to be their own authority. But can I close by saying to those of you who know Jesus, his authority is available to you. His available is authority, his authority is available to you. His, available, his authority is primarily available in the way that we repent of our sins and ask the Holy Spirit to keep evil from us. Ultimately, here in the book of Luke, Jesus is going to make his way to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to die in my place from my sins. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says, when Jesus died for my sins and your sins, the scripture says he disarmed powers. He disarmed principalities. He disarmed spirits. He triumphed over them and he canceled any right that they have to us. But when I willingly choose sin and rebellion, I willingly choose to join Satan's army and his war against God. But when I choose repentance and faith in Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, listen, when I choose that, our allegiance to Satan is overcome. His power over us is, is, is now canceled. And the power of God, listen to me, is now ours to steward. Jesus' authority becomes our authority. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to preach in these synagogues. In Luke chapter 4, it's the same Holy Spirit that we have access to, the same authority. This morning, some of you are have never professed your faith and your trust in Jesus. You're not a believer. You're not a Christian. And we're glad you're here. Your story is welcome here this morning. 
According to the Bible, though, the description the Bible gives is that you belong to the enemy of God. And I'm sure that's not a flattering description of who you are this morning. You may not even think of yourself that way. But maybe for some of you, you do have this sense of it, your life of torment or confusion, death. You're confused about it. Maybe for some of you, though, on the opposite side, you're just satisfied with life and you, have, and you sense no need for Jesus. Can I ask you today, will you recognize his authority over your life? He desires to give you the same power, the same authority for a meaningful life. Now, can I close and speak to those of us in the room who are believers? You're not possessed by Satan. It's not possible. But maybe... A, a habitual lifestyle of sin that goes without repentance has caused the occasion of the windows and the doors of your life to be open to Satan. And maybe you've invited people and things into your life that you now need to turn away from. The Bible says repent. You need to kick out with the authority of Jesus and you need to close the doors and the windows of your life and be filled with the spirit of the living God with access to his power. Will you recognize the authority of Jesus today? Will you harness the power of the spirit of the living God today in your life to refuse sin, reject sin, live in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control. We embrace the priorities of the kingdom of God in your life today. Jesus was not just an ordinary man. He was an unusual man with unusual authority. And he calls us to surrender our lives to that authority. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this morning together. Thank you for our time and reading the scriptures together. God, I pray for people in this auditorium who have no relationship with you, maybe apart from you, God, or not believers in you. God, I pray by the spirit of the living God you convince and convict their heart of sin and righteousness today. They will turn to you and surrender their life to you in trust and faith, dependence on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to cancel their sins and bring unity back to you because of it. God, may I pray for this morning for people in this auditorium who do know you or profess faith in Jesus. By the Spirit of the living God, would that be their story today? Would that be their journey this week, God? Victory, power, unusual authority over things that want to control us, subdue us, oppress us, cause us to walk away from Jesus by the power of the spirit of the living God. This week, may we experience victory, power, and authority. In Jesus' name.